0: decision-making expert, world-famous former poker player, and author of the now bestseller Thinking in Bets. I had a chance to interview Annie at the Investment Institute's Fall Forum in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and the live interview follows. Special thanks to Andrea Sigethy and Donna Holly, founders of the Institute, for having Annie and me down for their terrific event. Our conversation covers the challenge of separating signal from noise in making decisions, the formation and confirmation of beliefs, forming decision groups, communicating with teams, and mistakes Annie's advisory clients have made after reading the book. We close with some questions from the audience and end with two great poker stories of how Annie approached being a woman in the male-dominated poker world. Annie's irrepressible brain was on display this time around, covering a few of the same ideas from our last conversation and some new ones with different anecdotes along the way. Please enjoy my second conversation with Annie Duke. Thanks to Andrea and Donna especially for having us here. I'm going to give a very quick intro of Annie. She studied cognitive psychology at Columbia and Penn which, as you can imagine, is the natural path to becoming a professional poker player. (laughs) Annie was a dissertation defense away from getting her PhD, got ill, and needed to take a year off. And that led to one year sabbatical, trying to make a little bit of money at a poker parlor in Billings, Montana. And 20 years later, she retired. One of the most famous poker players in the world probably the most recognized television poker player. And over that time, she realized that she might not play poker forever and started thinking about what she was learning in the process and did a whole bunch of speeches and advising. And earlier this year, published this fantastic book called Thinking in Bets, which was her third book, but first for general audiences. So if what we're saying bores you, as we all have done, I've been sitting there too, and you take out your iPhone during this, go to your Amazon app click it. It's fine. We don't <laughs> mind. Just click like thinking about yes. buy a buy copy. Annie, what was it about poker that led you to start thinking about decision making?
1: Oh, gosh, I feel like it's so circular. So what I was studying when I was in graduate school feels, I think, to most people like it was pretty far afield from poker. What I was actually focused on was how children learn their first language. And What you realize when you get at a poker table is actually this is an incredibly similar problem, which makes you think about the similarities kind of across all learning where there's noise. So if you think about the problem for a child trying to learn a language, there's all sorts of noises. The child has to pick the things that are language out of all the noises. So like crinkling papers don't count, right? So that's kind of hard. And if you can pick those out, now you've got to identify the word boundaries and the sentence boundaries. And that's also really hard. And then once you get a word boundary, And then mother says something like, Dax, what does Dax mean? Well, does it mean the act of pointing? Does it mean the thing that she's pointing to? Does it mean an aspect of what's being pointed to, like the color, like yellow or soft? Could it be a state of mind, like think? Is it an action? I mean, this is a really hard problem, and it's incredibly noisy, and the feedback isn't great. And kids do it super fast. So that's what I was looking at, was how are there constraints that are sort of built into the way that we come into the world with this language machine that allow us to reduce the noise? So now I move and I start playing poker, and I think, well, now I'm doing something totally different, (laughs) except that I'm not, because you make these moves, and then you get some feedback. You win or lose the hand. But what does it really mean is the problem, because you can win a hand out of pure luck. You could win it out of skill. You could win it but not have won as much as you should have. For example, you could win, but win too much. You could win more than you should have. Same thing on the losing side. So it's also incredibly noisy. And so when I was thinking about what are the things that are really causing problems with learning language, which is there's information the kid doesn't know, and then there's sort of luck in terms of what's paired with what, that this seemed like the same problem that was occurring at the poker table, at which point I realized well, this is really the problem we have as decision makers in life, right? Is that there's a lot of noise between outcomes and feedback. And despite the fact that when I was in graduate school, I was taught that learning occurs when there's lots of feedback tied closely in time to decisions and actions, I realized, well, poker really tells you that's not true because people don't play poker very well, but there's a lot of feedback. So at some point I realized, well, I've just moved into a much better laboratory actually for studying the kinds of problems that I was interested in in graduate school and sort of took it from there and merged the two together.
0: And how did you start thinking about that difference between noise and signal?
1: So obviously this was something that I was really thinking about when I was thinking about language acquisition, right? Like there's a lot of noise and there's actual noise because it's language, but what's signal to the child? How are they picking the signal out? So I was kind of thinking about this just sort of trying to solve the problem for myself for about eight years. I wasn't really in any kind of explicit way thinking about it in an academic sense. I was thinking about how do I actually learn in this environment and figure out what's what? And then in 2002, I got asked by a hedge fund to come speak to a group of their traders. They were having a retreat for their traders to come and talk to them about risk. And I said, you know, I don't really want to talk about risk because I realized what I really want to talk about was this noise problem. And that was the first talk that I gave was about this noise problem and what it does. That's really where I ended up really thinking very explicitly about the way that this disconnection, this kind of pulling apart, this uncertain relationship between decision quality and outcome quality really gets in the way in so many ways of good decision making.
0: So why do we get things wrong?
1: Gosh, it's such a complicated question, but here's the problem. For any given outcome that you have, trying to work backwards to the quality of the decision is really hard. So most of the time, decision quality is incredibly opaque, particularly in retrospect. We don't really know what the mathematics are. We're working in unknown probabilities, right? So a lot of times, it's like ensemble probabilities, where it could be going in many different directions. But at any given time that we make a decision, there's lots and lots of possible futures that can occur. But there's only one that actually does occur right? Trying to figure out what are the probabilities of those futures is actually really hard to do from a prospective standpoint. But once we get into a retrospective stand, meaning that some outcome has already occurred, then we have a huge problem. I talk about it in the book. I call it resulting, which is the term that my group used for it, which is that the result actually casts a huge shadow on our ability to come back in and actually determine what the decision quality is which is hard on its own, but it's like this very big cognitive shadow, which I think is really built into us. We like things to be very connected. We like things to happen for a reason. We like things to have a causal relationship. We don't like randomness as a species. And so once we know the outcome, it's like we can't go back and kind of reconstruct the decision tree in any kind of real way. And so what ends up happening is we use the outcome quality as too perfect a signal, for decision quality as we're trying to kind of work back into that. And I think part of the reason for that in terms of this connection is if you think about from an evolutionary standpoint, what's the punishment for a false negative versus a false positive? And obviously the punishment for a false negative is much bigger. So you're on the savanna, you hear rustling in the grass, you're standing there trying to figure out what that is, and then you die because you get eaten. Or you run away and you might be wrong, but who cares? So the penalty for being wrong isn't so great because you live and your genes pass on. So we have this real tendency to be sort of overfitters. It's easier when you do things prospectively to not do that because you don't have anything to fit it to yet, except your own ideas, which is a whole other problem. But the retrospective problem is particularly problematic because it's not just your own ideas that you're trying to overfit it to, but now you actually have a result that you Naturally overfit.
0: What happens with your own ideas?
1: We can think about any decision we make as a bet. My book is called Thinking in Bets, and so this is obviously the premise of it. So people don't tend to think about their decisions as bets because they think about bets as confined, like they think about it in the traditional way that we use bet I mean I go in a casino and I place a bet on like the craps table. But all that a bet is, is you have some set of limited resources. You then have to invest in some sort of decision. You can't invest in all decisions that are available. You've got to go one way. So you're trying to figure out, given the resources that I have, which thing do I want to invest in that will result in what I think are going to be the best possible set of futures, given the limited resources that I have to invest. So any time that we have lots and lots of futures that could happen and we have limited resources, we know that we're betting. And this is actually true even if you only have one option you're still betting on that one option because of the uncertainty. It's still a bet. So once we sort of have that, we say, okay, so every decision is a bet. What are those bets built on? Well, they're built on our beliefs. And we can sort of divide our beliefs into two categories. One is like facts. The earth is round. Another would be predictions. The earth will be round tomorrow. And so those beliefs that we have about facts out in the world and how those can help us to figure out what the world will look like tomorrow or the next month or the next year or the next five years are what are informing our bets. So we have this foundation for every decision that we make. And what we would love is if the feedback that we get out in the world drives this foundation, actually makes it so that this is how we're forming our beliefs. But it turns out that that's not so. And this is where we kind of get this overfitting problem in a prospective sense. So Most of the beliefs that we have are actually woven into our identity about ourselves. There are some that aren't, but mostly the things that we believe actually sort of build our view of ourselves, and they become part of our identity. This is particularly true when we get into things that have to do with tribe. And tribe isn't just about politics. It's about whether you're a value investor or a trend follower or whatever it might be. I mean, we all have these tribes, and we believe these things very strongly as part of our identity. But we also believe things that aren't part of our identity that also drive the way that we look at the world. So an example that isn't part of your identity would be, how do you tell if a man's going to go bald? And when I ask people in the audience, they all raise their hand. You look at the mother's father. And what do we do with that information? Do we go out and take a random sampling of men who are going bald and find out where in their family tree they lie. No, what we do is we notice men who have gone bald. They say, yes, it was because my mother's grandfather was bald. And we say, aha, this must be true. So this becomes this problem of this circularity that what happens is it's not that the information that we get in the world actually informs our beliefs. It's that we form beliefs in a relatively haphazard way. And then those beliefs actually drive the way we process information. So what ends up happening is kind of twofold. One is that we notice information that confirms the beliefs that we already have. So you're looking through Google News and you're seeing the stuff that agrees with you and you don't see the stuff that doesn't agree with you so much. That's confirmation bias. That's pretty well known. But a bigger problem that people don't talk about it as much is that when we are confronted with information that disagrees with us, we work very hard to disconfirm it. So what happens is, you know, I'm in the morning. I'm reading political articles. I see something that agrees with me. I practically don't get past the headline. I just go, yay me. I'm so right. So is this person who's just written this? And when I see something that disagrees with me that I read, I'll write a dissertation on it. This is why it's wrong. These are the facts they're not including. This is why they're biased. So I work very hard to make sure it's not true. And then the other thing is that when information comes from out of tribe, we don't trust it. So it can actually cause us to entrench more. So what happens is that instead of the information in the world driving our belief formation, what happens is that the beliefs we have actually drive the way we process the information, and they drive it in a particular way to reinforce the beliefs we already have, and we get this circular pattern called motivated reasoning. So this is where the prospective problem comes in, is that as we're trying to figure out what are the possible futures that might occur, we have to have a very clear-eyed view about how much luck is in the process, which we try to reduce, because we don't like to think about luck. It doesn't feel good to us that we don't have control. But then also the beliefs that we have are going to inform our predictions about the future. And our predictions about the future are going to actually be motivated to essentially affirm and confirm the the beliefs that we already have. And so we're not going to get a particularly good view of the future that way.
0: Other than suffering from resulting (laughs) confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, and just about anything else, is there anything we can do to marginally improve the quality of
1: our decisions? So we can, and the important word in there is marginally. I think that what people generally think is like, well, I'm super smart, and everybody's super smart because of the better than average effect. So we're all super, super smart. And now I know about this. Someone's told me about motivated reasoning. Someone's told me about confirmation bias. They've told me about resulting. They've told me about all this stuff. So yay me, I'm clearly not going to do it anymore. (laughs) And the answer is, yes, you will. And in fact, it will be worse for you. So I'm just going to give the little bad news before I get to the good news. So there's actually two really good pieces. One's in my book. It's a study by Dan Kahan that showed that people who are really numerate, really good with statistics, for example, being able to work correlational tables that are difficult because the raw numbers kind of point you in the wrong direction, but the correlation points you in the right one, that people are really good with those tables. When you give them tables that have to do with something that is politically motivated for them, like gun control, they're worse. They're better at spinning the data to fit their... Beliefs because they're better with data. Like, who do you put in a spin room? The dumb guy or the smart guy? No, you put the smart guy so that he can data mine for you. So that's number one. Then there was also when solving syllogisms. So, syllogisms have internal logic, they don't have to relate to the real world. But we know that people get tripped up when a syllogism comes to a conclusion that doesn't comport with the real world. Like, all frogs are blue and then you fall apart and you can't see the internal logic anymore. So again, they looked at people who actually like, had degrees in logic. <laughs> they were really good at it. And they were worse when it didn't comport with their, with their political beliefs. This, so isn't,
0: we, Andy, this isn't helping.
1: I know. It's really sad. <laughs> so being smart actually makes it worse. So that's number one. So don't think that that's going to solve it. I think that that's what's really important. So now here's how we get marginally better. Just a survey in the room. How good do you think you all are in this room at spotting when other people are being biased? Like really good, right? <laughs> Right, because, like, I'm screaming at the television all the time. Okay, so we know that we're very good at spotting it in other people. In fact, we're so good at it that there was a great study that was just done where they had people solve logic problems, and they had to write down their answers to the logic problems and then rate their own answers, which, of course, they rated quite highly. Then they had them rate other people's solutions to the logic problems. Well, guess what? One of the five that they were rating was their own solution, which they had previously rated quite highly. And now when they saw it and they did not know it was their own, They were very critical of it. They wrote the dissertation on why it was so bad. So even when it's our own answer and we think it comes from someone else, we're much better at spotting bias. Okay, so let's use that to our advantage. And I can say, hey, Ted, I can see that you're really biased. And so why don't we make a deal? Because I imagine if I can tell you're really biased, you can probably tell when I'm really biased. So if we make a pact between the two of us that you're going to watch my bias and I'm going to watch your bias, and now we can form kind of a decision group together where we make rules about what the interaction is supposed to be. You can set me straight. I can set you straight. And now we can have a commitment to essentially reasoning to be accurate versus reasoning to be right. And I like to really make that distinction. Reasoning to be right is I believe things and I want those things to be true. That's just reasoning to be right. Reasoning to be accurate is saying there is some objective truth, and I should be working to build the most accurate model of the objective truth. Because if we go back to the idea of decisions as bet, who wins a bet? The one who has the most accurate model of the objective truth or the one who just thinks they're right, well, that's an easy answer. So let's make a commitment to do that together and watch each other's back. It's
0: not hard to envision that you start doing that and they can be a little bit emotionally charged, right? Mm-hmm. you trying to tell me that something I think is yeah. right is wrong. Are there ways of massaging the language so that it's easier to deliver that message?
1: Yeah. So certainly there's some people who have a personality where when I just say, like, you're out of your mind, it's fine. But not everybody's kind of, like, in that way. So there's a few things you can do. One is you can say, well, I think there's another way to look at it. So notice I haven't in any way invalidated your way to look at it. I'm saying, could you consider this other thing? Let's look at it this other way. And then, like, we can compare and contrast. And so all these sort of ways that you can do it have to do with not invalidating the thing you said. So another thing you can do is to actually be very future-focused, So if you say something that I think is really biased about something that's happened in the past, what I can do is instead of saying, don't you think that's not why that's actually true? Instead, I can say, well, how do you think you could prevent that from happening in the future? Now, notice that in order for you to actually reasonably answer that question, you must go back and look at where you went wrong in the first place, because you can't answer that question without doing that. But I'm not the one making the challenge to you. I'm just asking how you could fix it in the future. So an example with my kids, right? My my child would come home and say, oh, you know, I got such a bad grade on that test because the teacher put a bunch of stuff that wasn't on the test. And it was really hard, and everybody did really poorly on it. And also, he hates me, and you can ask anybody in the class. (laughs) Meanwhile, I saw a lot of 2K being played. So instead of saying to him, hold on a second, I saw you on 2K the whole time, what I say is, oh, that must be really frustrating how do you think you could do better on the next test? And we'd get to the same place as if I said you were playing a lot of 2K. It's just that we would do it without the confrontation because I would just validate. So think about how do you say yes and, you know, that old improvisation thing of yes and. When
0: you're starting one of these discussion groups, how do you start honing in on these are the observations that I'm going to try to make for you where I see you have a bias when I'm not experienced at doing that
1: yet? One of the things that I really ask for people to do when I'm doing trainings with them is to start to really write down a list for themselves of things that are really good cues that they're probably thinking in a biased way. As an example, whenever you sort of offload to the world, when you're socializing something to the world completely, that's usually a really good example. Actually, I saw something interesting. It was recently an interview with Cliff Asnes, and he said this. He said, when The market goes down because of humans panicking. People say the market went down. So that's a really good example of socializing to the world, as if this has nothing to do with people. But when it goes down because of algorithmic trading, people say it was the quant's fault. So that's privatizing to people. So that's a good example of when you see yourself socializing out to the world. That's what my son was doing. It wasn't my fault. It was because the teacher doesn't like me, for example. So I know that for me, that's a really big thing when I listen to that structure and that structure of the language where I know I'm socializing to the world. Another one for me personally is like, oh my gosh, it was so unfair. It feels really unfair. It feels like things like this always happen to me. When I'm speaking in extremes of like zero or 100%, I'm totally certain, or you're wrong, or I'm right, or I should have seen that coming. That's another good one for me. So anyway, for everybody, it's going to be a different list. So I really ask people to write these things down. And then I would share that with you. And then you would help me to start completing that list. So we would start somewhere where you would say, look, here are the things for me that are really bad things for me to be saying. Here's a type of category where I think that I fall down. Please watch for this. And we're going to share these lists together. And then can you help me add to it? I think that that's always a really good place to start.
0: A lot of the people listening are leaders of their organizations. And yeah, you could form a discussion group. It's probably a great thing to do. How do they go about communicating with their teams in such a way that improves the quality of the decision of
1: the team? Let me give you two of the many, many, many ways (laughs) that you can do that. The first has to do with really understanding that when you're in a leadership position in particular, there's this problem of contagion that becomes really exacerbated. So contagion is basically this. It's that it's not only that I will try to reason toward my own beliefs, but that if I tell you what my beliefs are, I have infected you with them and you will now without knowing it also try to reason toward my beliefs. So Most of us kind of want to be on the same page with the other human beings that we talk to, assuming that you're within tribe. If you're not within tribe, we have the opposite motivation, but that's then I'm also infecting you in a different way. But let's assume we're in tribe. So given that you want to sort of be on the same page as I am, without knowing it unconsciously, once I've stated my belief, which could be a fact or a prediction, it doesn't matter, you're now going to start to reason toward that. That's a particularly big problem if you're in a leadership position. So when you're trying to get high-fidelity advice from your team, it's really important, actually, that you keep your beliefs to yourself as you're trying to work a decision and allow them to sort of speak freely. That's kind of number one. And it's actually really hard to do. Think about this for yourselves. Like, when you share, like, an opinion piece, like, you read an opinion piece in a newspaper and you want to find out what somebody else thinks about it, do you do this or that? Here's A. Hey, Ted, I read this opinion piece. Will you read it? Let me know what you think. End stop. B, hey, I read this opinion piece, and I think this, 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 and this about it. I'd love to get your opinion. Will you read it? We all do the second thing, because we think that our opinion is somehow really important. It's like an important piece of information. Like, I think I'm giving you really valuable data. But in so doing, I've ruined you as a partner in crime, because you are now going to read that through the frame of what I've already told you. And we do this in little ways every single day. And as leadership, we have to really be careful about this infection problem. So that's number one, is like, keep your beliefs to yourself, keep your predictions to yourself, try to keep your leans to yourself as you're trying to work through decisions or when you're doing a post-mortem or whatever it is, let them speak freely. And then the other thing that I would say is that the group will infect each other. So as much as you can give them at first to give you independent advice, the better off you are so that they're not also infecting each other because sometimes the more charismatic people in the group will be the bigger infectors or whatever. So, so that's number one is try and quarantine. And then number two is you have to lead in a way that really allows people to not be afraid of outcomes. And I think this is really hard. I think there's a lot of really bad decision making that happens in the world because we're really afraid of how it might turn out. And so we're trying to anticipate what's the decision in which I can make the best case for why this isn't my fault. And when we start to reason in that way, our risk profile starts to get really, really distorted because we're not aligned with what the long-term best interest of anything is were aligned with what trying to protect ourselves against what the short-term downside might be. And I think that in general, that's sort of a leadership issue. And it's because the problem is that human beings know that people blame them for the way that things go, right? It's kind of going back for this resulting problem. And given that human beings know that you get blamed for that, then essentially you just try to avoid the things you get blamed for. And then all of a sudden you have a salesperson who's closing 100% of their sales. And by the way, if you can't change that, you should fire them, which is counterintuitive. So I think that's another thing is that you really have to communicate in a way to your team that you don't need to be afraid with me, that I care about the quality of the decision, but I'm not as worried about the quality of the outcome, not in the short term. I recognize that if we work together to make good quality decisions, the outcomes will realize
0: In the investment world, this world of uncertainty, we know that we're going into a decision and we don't know the answer. No, we don't. How do you go about talking about what you do know and you don't know in a way that makes the people on your team more comfortable to fall through the process without the reliance on the outcome?
1: So there's a few things that I think are really helpful in terms of getting people to that place. Thing number one is that as you're trying to work through it, really having people work through what are the possible scenarios and have them start to try to really put probabilities on those. And when they say, well, the probabilities are unknown, you say, fine, but we know it's not the whole range of zero to 100%. So let's try to create a range on that. And once you do that, what you tell them is, I understand that I'm not asking you to be right I'm asking you to start to narrow it down and think in this probabilistic way and give me sort of what you think is the best view of the future. And obviously, in order to start narrowing down what those ranges are and the probabilities, then you start to ask the right questions of what are the things that we could know? that would allow us to actually get this to be an even narrower range. You start to get people really comfortable with being willing to not say, I think it's 55%. Being willing to say, I think it's somewhere between 40 and 65%. How can we get that better? So that's a good way to communicate that process matters to you. Because even saying it's 75%, that's an outcome right there that people feel like they're sort of going to be pegged to. And so they're afraid to give you anything at all. I think that's number one. Number two is to allow people... To understand that the point is to, again, be accurate, not right. So I think this idea of doing these pre-mortems are really important because it shifts what it means to be a team player into something where you're willing to explore the way that things can go wrong. So there's kind of a pair of exercises that you can do: one is a backcast, and one is a pre-mortem. So a backcast would be things are good, right? Or it's a year from now, and our portfolio is up 15%. Why do we think that that happened? So this is a really natural way for people to think. And now you're sort of working backwards. It gets you out of thinking about just what's right here and thinking a little bit more long-term about what are the things that could have occurred in the last year. And you do that happy exercise. But doing this other exercise, if it's a year from now and our portfolio is down 15%, that's a premortem. And have people actually engage in that exercise allows people to know that you're thinking about the fact that things don't always work out. What matters to us is that we foresee the landscape much more than that we get a good outcome, right? Because we assume that if we foresee the landscape and we go through these exercises and we're willing to do this together, that we're going to end up on the good side of the outcomes much more. And it redefines for people what being a good team player means, because now they get to say, well, we made this mistake and we did this wrong. And then you think about the things that have to do with luck, like the president did such that we, we don't have control over that. And you start to think about, what do I have control over? What don't I And that gets you much more focused just on how good of a forecaster are we. And now the outcome you're looking for is good forecasts as opposed to good or bad outcomes. And if you can get people focused on good forecasting as opposed to the quality of the outcome itself, people believe much more that the outcome will come.
0: You've now written the book, and there's the definition of the problem, some prescriptions, and you go out and you start advising organizations who have read the book what have you found?
1: So it's two things. So when I was writing the book and I was talking about this disconnection between outcomes and decision quality, I was thinking about two problems that come from this. Problem number one is that you can make really, really good decisions and have them not work out. Even if it's 99% of the time, it's going to work out. like Sometimes that 1% hits. So there was definitely that side of it. But the obverse of that is that you can make really, really terrible decisions and have those work out just fine. I have run red lights in my life by mistake, and I'm alive. Thank you very much. And both of these are really huge problems for learning, really, really big problems for learning. Because in one case, obviously, you don't want to think that just because it worked out well that I should now go around running red lights. That's pretty bad. I mean, I've actually heard people say, like, I drive better when I'm drunk. It's like, great, because you got home safely once. Ah. Um, <laughs> we all have that. There's so many things in our lives where we think we drive better when we're drunk just because like, stuff worked out. So we don't want to have that happen. But what's interesting is that as much as I emphasize that side of the coin, which I think is actually the worst problem, Good stuff happened. I think it's because of me solely. I'm just going to repeat all that stuff. And the reason why I think it's a worse problem is, number one, you don't want to repeat it. But number two, when you go down that line, you tend not to explore whether you were like on the tertiary line. Yeah, okay, you had a great result, but maybe you were supposed to have a result that was twice as good. But we leave those things relatively unexamined because we just think we did a great job. I think that's the bigger problem. What people latched onto was the other thing, though. Which isn't surprising, given our own bias, that our beliefs and the things that we believe about ourselves and our own decision quality are so wrapped up into our identity. Is it that surprising that people latched on to the, well, I can have bad outcomes and it's not my fault part? Well, I suppose not. (laughs) I suppose that isn't that surprising, because that fits in with reasoning to be right. I thought I had emphasized it enough in the book that I was really, really scared of this other problem. I don't know if I could have emphasized it enough, maybe. And so that I was really surprised about was that that particular line of reasoning about what happens when things work out well and why is that so problematic for learning. And so then what goes along with that is that what I found was that one of the biggest problems that I was seeing was that people who are in finance know this process language, Like, they know it really well. Like, they understand that you're supposed to speak in process. But when I actually looked at what they were doing, they weren't. They were really just worried about the downside, unexpected downside outcomes. So they would come in, they would say, oh, Annie, you know, we're really process-oriented around here, but I'm having this problem because I feel like my desk heads are not managing their risk very well, you know. And I don't understand why, because I tell them I don't care all the time, because we're process-oriented. And then I would sit in on their meetings, and they were all, why did we lose? So I was like, well, what do you think you're telling them? You're telling them you you really, really care when you lose. When was the last time you had a meeting about why did you win? (laughs) The example that I give is, like, you're a real estate investor, and you invest in a property, and the appraisal comes in super low, and it's just this all hands on deck, what's wrong with our model? But the appraisal comes in super high, and it's literally like, yay, (laughs) (laughs) in reality that 's like as big a problem, right Like if your model is forecasting low that 's as big a problem for your ability to actually allocate your capital in a really smart way as if your forecast is coming in wrong the other way it's this whole side of the world remains unexamined so unless you 're willing to examine both sides of the world, how can you actually be process oriented right then you 're really just outcome oriented with a bunch of process language wrapping around it. <laughs> Which is why I go back to this problem of being smart makes it worse. Because when you're smart, you're really good at wrapping processing language as a pretty package, but what's inside is a pile of bad outcomes when you open the present. It just looks really pretty, and it sounds really good, and you're really convincing to the people around you, except that you're not actually behaving in that way. It's just that you can spin a better story about how you're process-oriented.
0: I'm sure we're going to have a few questions people want to ask. Before we do, I want to give a little pitch for your blog. So first of oh, all, thank you. if you've, you're looking at your phone and you haven't bought the book, you're supposed to do that, then you should go to annieduke.com. There's a wealth of information. And one of them is Annie's been putting together a weekly blog of things she sees and read where people are consistently making these types of mistakes. And as she said, you find, oh, I, I read the book. And for about three days, I'm thinking incredibly well about my decisions. And then you go back. And I found this to just be a fantastic way of refreshing your mind of, oh, yeah, got to remember, every week, every week, every week.
1: Yes, it's a newsletter, and you can just go on there and, and subscribe to it. It's...
0: So how else are you spending your time? In?
1: Well, the newsletter takes a lot of time. <laughs> so I just sold another book with a third book behind that. So I'm going to be working on a workbook, actually, to help people be able to instantiate some of the lessons in the book. And then another book that's a little bit more on the line of what we just talked about, actually, in terms of this real problem of, like, how do we actually get people away from being outcome-driven in their decision-making? Going back to do my PhD with Phil Tetlock, trying to fit that in. It's been slow (laughs) because I'm a little busy. And outside of, like, my children, which take a lot of my time and other things, I'm doing a ton of This I do a lot of keynoting, trainings, half-day, full-day trainings, coaching, and consulting. Thanks. Questions? So I would love to spend the last five minutes allowing people in the audience to ask you some questions, if that's okay, before we break for lunch. Questions, please raise your hands.
0: Probably everyone in here is invested with either an individual pulling the trigger on whatever investment or a group making a decision. How would you expect those two to be different? I mean, I think intuitively you'd think the individual would have far wider outcomes, either really good, really bad versus a group, but it'd be interesting in your view.
1: So it so completely depends on how the group is constructed. Most groups become individuals on steroids, kind of. You tend to stick with people who agree with you. People don't really like conflict very much. Generally, dissent is not well represented. And so in some ways, a group can actually be worse than an individual if the thought style is confirmatory. Now, if you have a group who's really developed a good culture around exploratory thought, then the group is going to do much better in general. And the reason why is that the group will have a disciplining effect and a pretty strong disciplining effect on the bias of any particular individual in the group. But you have to really query if you want to understand whether a group is the better choice than a particular individual, you've got to query on what that culture looks like. And you have to be really careful because you may have someone tell you about how process oriented they are and how open to dissent they are. I would want to sit in on those meetings and listen to how they actually communicate with each other. Because in reality, it's incredibly hard to actually put into practice. And when you do that, you have a bunch of people who are cheerleading each other and it actually becomes worse. Because the individual will tend to have more doubts because they don't feel like they have natural consensus. And so the individual will discipline themselves better than a group will discipline them if the group has a conformatory thought style. So you know, I would say sort of if you had to rank order, like the worst is a group that has a confirmatory thought style, then would be an individual investing and then would be a group with an exploratory thought style. I think that we tend to think that putting a group together is just better and it's not true. It really depends on what the culture of the group is what you said really resonates with me. I really enjoyed your comments. (laughs) I'm curious. There's so much talk in executive ranks about being results oriented. And I'm curious about when you go out and talk to people, how that language of I'm results oriented gets in the way of what you're talking about. I think it's one of the worst things that somebody can say. I think that if you say I'm long-term results-oriented, that's totally fine, because we all should all be long-term results-oriented, right? Like, Give me 10,000 coin flips. I'll tell you a whole bunch about the coin. But I don't want to know on one result. That's a language that I actually try to get rid of right away, because I think that that's actually directly communicating to people that they really need to defend themselves against the results, but particularly bad results. So I think that when you say results-oriented, you think that you're motivating people to give you good results. And the fact is that you are, but not the right kind. What you're motivating them to do is to choose consensus choices, to stick with the status quo, to choose the lower volatility choice rather than the higher volatility choice, to try to sort of keep the swings low. I actually am hearing it more in terms of, therefore, I'm not process-oriented. It's better to not be process-oriented because I'm results-oriented. Oh, that's really interesting. So... Generally, what you're telling people is that your decision-making is a black box to me. So you are saying, I'm not process-oriented. And in fact, what I think goes along with that is very often what you hear from people who are saying, I'm results-oriented, is that they have a big belief in gut as well. It's this idea of, like, well, we can't really open it up to a process because like I have my secret sauce. And so if you ask me why I made the decision I did, it's just because I'm me. And what I really try to get people who are thinking that way to think about is that it's really good to open up the black box because I'm a big fan of what Feynman said. Like, if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you probably don't know what you're talking about. And so when someone says, well, I did it because of my gut, I think it's a cop-out. And what I'll generally say to somebody like that is, well, okay, I know it was your gut, so that's great. And I'm really happy your gut is so good. But wouldn't it be great if the rest of your team could sort of learn from your gut? And so what what I then do is I don't challenge that their gut is really good. I just tell them it would be really good if they had to teach it to the rest of their team. Because otherwise what happens is that you're not actually bringing your intuitive choices up to the light of day against a rational process. So I think that those two things go hand in hand is that they're a big believer in black box decision-making. So you have to sort of pull those two things out. The way I do it is like, that's great, but you got to teach them how. And then that will generally get them to start thinking a little bit more about process, but it's tough.
0: We have a group of very experienced women back here, and we're not that they're not others throughout through twenty six percent as
1: I counted the roster, but we were talking as you were talking about how we are constantly feeling like we're wrong when we're in a group meeting, and
0: we've often been the only woman in the group mm-hmm. It's just so consistent, I think for
1: women in a lot of these meetings is there's something about we should be aware of in those meetings or try to grab onto or the way that we were taught to do things.
0: Can we close this by you telling a poker story of how you can take advantage of being a woman?
1: Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) That's an interesting way to close it. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So to your point, I think that one of the problems that I have found when I've talked to women, just to give you an idea, in an average poker room, 3% of the people playing are women. Not too many of us. So you're sitting at the table. And by the way, there's no HR department. <laughs> and there's this real sense, like, as someone says something completely outrageous to you at the table and you look at the floor person who's supposed to be sort of controlling the game, it's this, Pfft, well, you can leave. So all right, OK, I guess I could. So it's this idea, like, you're here voluntarily. So therefore, whatever abuse you're taking, you're choosing. A lot of what's happening is that what's coming at you is a real disrespect for your abilities and your intellect. I think that everybody has a need to be liked and respected, but there's a time and a place for that. And when you're sitting across a table from an opponent, it is not in any way, shape, or form to your advantage to be prove that you should be liked and respected. As much as it doesn't feel good when someone says something really nasty to you and disrespects you. As an opponent, that's an advantage. So what I used to try to think about when I was playing was that in terms of the structure that I was sitting in, there wasn't a whole lot that I could do about it, right? Like I couldn't look at the floor man and say, could you make this stop? That wasn't going to happen. And that maybe just by my presence and me being in this world, that maybe the culture would change over time. But that certainly in any given moment, I couldn't do a whole lot to change the culture. So what I started to think about was, well, how can I take the fact that you have this attitude toward me, and not everybody, but a certain subset of the people I was playing against would have this attitude toward me, and how can I actually create agency for myself in that interaction in order to turn that to my advantage? So here's two really simple examples. I know that you think that I'm capable of thinking that's only one level deep. That that's as far as my little girl brain will go. So therefore, that must mean that if I'm betting, I probably have a strong hand. And if I'm not, then I probably have a weak hand. And so you're going to give me a relatively one-to-one mapping between my actions and the quality of my cards. So once I know that, I can say, well, you don't think too much of me. That's fine. But because you don't think too much of me, that means I can bluff you all the time because you're of the opinion that I'm incapable of putting a lot of money in the pot unless I have a very good hand. So that would be a way that I could use that to my advantage. Another example would be there's a certain type of opponent who would consider it a total assault on their masculinity if you were to bluff them. That would be the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And what goes along with that is they want to kind of assert themselves over you all the time as well. So the way that that tends to manifest is that they're highly aggressive of you because they're trying to bluff you all the time. And if you try to bluff them, they call you because the only way you can stop someone from ever bluffing you is to actually just check them out every single time and not ever fold. And folding to a woman doesn't feel very good to them. So obviously, again, somebody like that, well, there's no use in bluffing. But what I know I can do is that I can take my very good hands and I can just bet like way more than I normally would be able to because you're just going to be what we call looking you up all the time. You're going to want to see my whole cards to make sure I'm not tricking you because that would not feel good to you. So I remember actually uh, one of the very first times that I played in the biggest win that I had at this time, I was playing a $2, $5 pot limit hold'em game. I think my biggest win up to this point was probably $1,800, and I played against a particular gentleman who was of this variety who really just wanted to assert himself over me. So he kept betting, and I kept calling him, and I would call him with like ace high, and I would call him with like two twos, and I mean, I was just calling him with these ridiculously bad hands, and he would move on to the next hand and try it again, and he would move on to the next hand and try it again, and I ended up winning 7500 in the game. It was the biggest win I'd ever won. And for anybody who knows anybody about that $2, $5 limit, like, a huge win in that game should be $1,000. So, like, this is a good example of kind of the best revenge is not for me to try to convince you otherwise. It's to figure out what the best way for me to take strategic advantage is of the way that you're sort of viewing me as a human being. Then I can walk away from the table because... I wouldn't be friends with you if this is your attitude toward women anyway, so what do I care, was kind of the way that I (laughs) looked at it. So why am I trying so hard to make you my friend? And I I want to just say really, really clearly that this is not the majority of people I played against. There is just a certain sector of the people that I played against who behaved in this particular way, and it was super yummy when that
0: happened. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Annie.
1: In bets. Annie too. Thank you.
0: Before you take off, I've created three different ways for you to stay updated on the podcast and my blog according to your preferences. First, you can sign up to receive a monthly email with a few great things I've read and listened to over the month. Second, for more prompt delivery, you can subscribe to my blog and receive emails when each podcast episode and blog post come out. And last, you can access the full library of transcripts by signing up for a premium subscription. All three options are available on the homepage at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Thanks for your support.